Amen. So it is uh, Sunday, May 13th. It is 2012. It's Mother's Day, so I'm supposed to have a warm, compassionate message, Darren. And uh, I don't have it in me. So what I'm going to say is Happy Mother's Day. We are thrilled to death that you're here if you're a mama. Mamas in the Bible are exalted. Mamas in the Bible are wonderful. If you want to hear all of the good things I had to say about Mother's Day, last year there was a message called Resh Hesh Mem. It had to do with the compassionate nature of God. It had to do with a word that both signifies something that is only female and also a characteristic of God. Not because He's female, but because God made man and woman in His image. Amen? So that's all I had to say about the subject, and I did that last year. So this year we can preach on something new. We don't have to follow a lectionary anymore. Isn't that good news? Amen. Amen. So turn with me to 1 Samuel. At the end of the message here today, mothers, we will remember what God has done through you. We will remember that. We will pray for you, bless you, and we even brought you roses because that's become kind of a tradition for us. Tell me when you're in 1 Samuel because our message today is called Enveloped. Come on now, Enveloped. We're going to be in 1 Samuel and the chapter will be 1. There was a certain man. Come on now, a certain man. Look, I hate when preachers do that. They get three words into a message and then they want to get all deep on you, right? This is no deeper than what it actually says. You know what this says in Hebrew? It says a certain man. That's why they wrote that right there in English in your Bible. But if God picked one man out of a nation and said, let's talk about that certain man. Isn't there something special about being picked by the Lord? Well, what was he picked for? What is this example of? Come on now. It's everybody's story. It's hardship. It's overcoming power of God. It is barren of seeing any life, and yet God brought something out of it. He picked a certain man. Look at verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from the town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Man, 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 year after year. I don't know what kind of situation you have labored in in the kingdom, but I have been in some uncomfortable ones. When I was a little boy... All of us were lost. We, we were doing our best. We were trying to find a way to get into the presence of God. And we didn't know what that looked like. And for some time, we went to church where there was a priest who later turned out to be a homosexual. He became famous in our town for things that you do not want to be famous for. You could say he was infamous. This man is going year after year to a place where the priests are infamous in the Bible. They're infamous for being wicked. They're infamous for their family line being cut off because they did bad things. I want to tell you this does not prevent God from moving. The people around you sin could never keep you from doing what God called you to do. If it could, Joseph would have had no chance. Jesus would have had no chance. Moses would have had no chance. The call of God in your life stands... Even if everybody around you compromises, the truth is it depends upon you and it depends upon God. Everybody else is there for encouragement, for strengthening. Hophni and Phinehas are not good men. Eli goes down in the Bible as somebody who had a heart attack, fell over backwards, broke his neck because God's judgment was in his life and he would not correct his own children. This was a year after year situation. Can you imagine going to an altar year after year and when you look around you, the priests you see are not the epitome of holiness. 
Year after year, you do not see the results you had wanted. How many years would it be before you blame God and blame man? How many years would it be before a critical spirit would convince you that God's word to you was simply not true? You want to know how many licks it takes to get to the center of that lollipop? All you need to do is look around. All you need to do is look around. How many times have you heard churches are full of hypocrites? It's great to ask someone what church they attend when they say that. They might be right. Especially when they walk in. We look for any excuse we can for God's word not to be true. Because if his word is true, then something's required of us. If my brother cannot disqualify the promise of God in my life, if a faulty priest cannot disqualify the promise of God in my life, then it must depend upon me and God. That is a scary reality, isn't it? Yeah. At the judgment day, we won't be able to look to our left and look to our right and say, what about them? The Lord will look at you and say, who do you say that I am? We live in a generation that is so full of excuses. Everybody fights to be a victim. It's really a strange phenomenon. Because if we're all victims, then nothing's required of any of us except that you pity us. I want to tell you the church of the living God moves beyond geography. It moves beyond race. It moves beyond socioeconomic groups. It moves beyond political orientation. It moves beyond those things. And it challenges you. Despite what anyone else is doing, what is your role? This is the church of the living God. The church of the living God causes men to stand up and preach. is moved by the Holy Spirit. Nothing that you saw in worship today, not one thing was choreographed. We didn't have a song list. We didn't have people seated in the congregation to prophesy. Amazing things happen when you show up and expect the Lord to move. Amen. He does. He does. But you know what doesn't happen? He doesn't excuse us of responsibility. He increases it and He empowers it. Today this message about envelop has to do with an increasing, empowering responsibility. Year after year this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of Yahweh. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife uh, Peneah and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord closed her womb. Sometimes we look at hardship and we think the devil is attacking us. Sometimes we look at hardship and because we don't have a sense of immediate gratification, we think something is wrong with the promise of God. Has anybody in here had to stand for healing for more than an hour? You ever had to fight for a promise of God in your life and it, it took more than a year to fulfill? This doesn't mean the Lord doesn't love you. He's a good husband. In fact, hardships are not from the devil. Our reactions to hardships, those are often from the devil. Hardship is something that the Lord trains us with. You don't believe me? Read the book of Deuteronomy. He allows you to get hungry so that he has the opportunity to teach you. He says He caused you to get hungry so that He could feed you to teach you. Man does not live on bread alone. Hardships are a lot in life, friends, and they're a benefit. They point us towards the Lord. Amen. Cursed is the ground for your sake, the King James says. Do you like that when I quote the King James? Some of you do, some of you don't, right? But we're going to call it a universally accepted translation when I quote it. <laughs> for your sake. In other words, the struggle that is around us would cause us to do something. 
It would cause us to seek out the living God. It would cause us to seek His help. Our trials were meant to cause us to strive for Him. The Lord had closed her womb. Anyone that has ever struggled to have a family knows how incredibly painful this process could be. Anybody that has ever struggled to birth a church knows how incredibly painful this process can be. Or any other ministry call. Everybody is very excited the first week you set out to do it and then the sixth month even your own family is going, do you really think that this is God? Because if it was God, wouldn't it look like six flags over Jesus already? That's what the American model says. Immediate success is God. And what is success? Numbers and dollars and fame and glory. Where is any of that in these people's lives? You know what they have? They have the trudging, wearing, here, after year, corrupt priesthood, difficult circumstances. Friends, in Israel, you can divide it into four corners. For argument's sake, we'll call one a northwest corner. It's lush. It's fertile. We'll call one a northeast corner. It's dry. It's barren. The southwest corner, it is also lush and beautiful. It's where the rose of the valley of Sharon was sung about. The southeast corner, was the most dry, the most barren area. It's the area around the Dead Sea. 50% of Israel, divided north to south by a mountain range, was dry and barren. They can prove the existence of 350 biblical cities. 350, you can go to the spot and say, these rocks here can be ascribed to that city in this book. You know what text you cannot do that with? Doesn't matter whether he's elected or not. You cannot do that with the Book of Mormon. You can't. None of the places that the Book of Mormon says existed in North America can be gone to and pointed to today. But in the biblical text, you can go find 350 cities that are mentioned in the Word in Israel today. You know what is shocking? 300 of them are in the dry, barren section. You look at the prophets that were called in Israel. You find me a prophet that was called from the northwest corner and I'll kiss your ring. They weren't. They were always called out of the wasteland. They were called out of difficulty. The howling, trackless waste where you learn to hear God's voice. This is where men and women of God are formed. In the pressure of an unfulfilled promise. In the pressure cooker of unseen glory that you have to act like is real. This is where Bible faith is percolated. This is where it begins to grow. Something inside you begins to say, nevertheless, God! Come on, church. We believe in only what we can touch. Has our faith simply become a matter of creed? Or is there something more down inside us that says, despite what I see? It causes men to move across state lines. It causes them to pick up from their families. It causes them to walk away from a job. It causes them to act like there is a reality just beyond what they can see. Amen. You so rarely see it in the group called Christian, and yet you see it every day in Christ. Amen. There must be a disparity between those terms. <laughs> the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now, we don't know anybody like that, do we? There's no Sambalat, no Tobiah standing outside your walls going, God's not going to do it for you. 
Why are you doing building that wall out in the middle of nowhere? God's not going to do it for you. What they're really saying is we hope he doesn't because then I would feel guilty because I should have trusted him for what he told me. But if he doesn't do it for you, then perhaps he never would have done it for me and we can be partners in misery and blame it on God. Unfortunately, there's no bigger population of people defined that believe this in their practical daily life than those who call themselves Christians. At least an atheist stands up and says, I don't believe there is a God. I would rather see a man stand up and say, I don't believe there is a God, than one who says there is, but in his practical deeds expresses atheism. Acts like there's not. I know. There's all kind of theological terms for these people. What I want in all of my heart is for my actions to match my creed. Amen. I want deeds to be there that show what kind of tree it is. How do you get fruit that proves you believe in what you can't see? How do you get fruit that involves overcoming trial, experiencing sacrifice? Friends, it's only found in the desert. It is only found in the difficult place. But we spend our whole lives trying to avoid it. We plan carefully. We work very hard to never be put in a position of vulnerability. And yet that's the only place that God molds a man. You show me one man that he called from his strength, called from his power, from his glory, and said, you are so wonderful, I'll use you. The closest you'll ever get to it is Saul. And God changed him into a completely different person in the 13th chapter. But he didn't stay that way. This went on year after year, a rival irritating her. Whenever Hannah, Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Come on now. I would call that clinical depression. I don't know what the medical field calls clinical depression. I know that the people that say are clinically depressed and they treat, I never see any improvement in. But people that we treat with the word of God, that God begins to speak, we Amen. see improvement in. I know that. Amen. Provoked her until she wept and she would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? In other words, those around you will say, don't worry about the call of God not fulfilled in your life. You have me. Isn't that enough? No. <laughs> Is that commentary on you? Does that mean that you are not enough? It means you're not God, friend. That's what it means. See, we are both in the group of people that are called and must set out against the grain to accomplish what God called us. And we're in the group of bystanders that are watching our brothers do it. And we need to neither be offended when we see a brother stretch out and do that, nor do we need to be in that group that is discouraging them, saying, are we not enough? You know, the bystander effect says that if you all stand on one side of the fence and nobody crosses the line, then everybody will think it's okay. And the tendency is to hate the person that does step across the line. God's called us to move the whole group, friends, in one direction. He's called us to move the whole group in one direction. Elkanah wants to know, am I not enough? Your spouse will never be enough to fulfill that void in you. Come on, those of you not yet married that are examining each other's lives, looking at each other, going, are you, are you marriage material? You need to understand something that will never fill that void in you. If God has called it, then what they do 
is they join you in that call of God. You find out that you're two halves of one calling. You find out that you have two personalities but one purpose. This is what you find out. This is where God takes us. In a congregation, you can look around and go, I don't have anything in common. Those people are all excited about this and I'm not. It's okay, friend. You just weren't called to be on this particular flight. You know, go, go find your flight. This is not it. If something inside you resonates, though, if you say, yes, this is right, this is where we're called to go, this is what we should do, and maybe you're not the one that goes into the nation, but you feel compelled to pray for the nation. You feel compelled to support the efforts. It's like fingers on a hand. We all have a little different function and we make one great big fist for God. But you ought to feel this sense of connection. If you don't, go find the place that you do. Because the body is big and it's beautiful. And when God has put it together, it's full of life and purpose. But is it fair for me? That if I see you sitting here today, I'm going to assume that God drug you into this place for this reason? Is it fair that if I look out and see the seats filled on the plane that God gave us, that I are to say, you know what? We're going to the same destination. So forgive me if we will not let you sit on your salvation. Forgive me if we will not say that it's enough to be warm, well-fed, tithe occasionally and sit in a seat. It is not. We've got places to go for Jesus. Amen. Amen. This woman's womb was closed, but her heart was not. Come on. Once when they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. This seems to indicate he might be a Nazarite. Come on, have you ever wanted something so badly only to realize that the moment God gives it to you, you surrender it to Him or else it's idolatry? Do you know how many pastors have made their ministry idolatrous? Because it's as if the kingdom revolves completely around what God gave them to do. In other words, the kingdom completely revolves around them. It's a strange sort of self-intoxication. The way that you know whether it's for you or for the Lord is will you sacrifice it for Him? Everyone who gets a new car, everyone who gets a new house, everyone who wants to justify the new clothes that they're buying, what do we say? This car, this car is for the Lord. Curtis is for the Lord. Brandon, this house, God gave it to me for the Lord. And then when the Lord wants to use it, we scratch our head, make an excuse and reschedule Right? Come on, you want to know whether something belongs to the Lord or not? Put it at His disposal. Everything I have is the Lord. Really? Where's your checking account? Oh, well, not that. Oh, then we found your idol. And I don't want your money today. I just know where your idols are because we're made of the same stuff. A man has two pennies. He doesn't want to give them up. And if he has to give something up, he will give up one and not the other. We have in us the desire to keep around us that which we can control, that which we can count, that which we can feel secure in. And the Lord is always calling us 
to that which cannot be counted, that which has no security, that which leaves us completely dependent upon Him. This woman has got a broken, broken heart. Come on now, have you ever seen that? Look around you. Some of your brothers and sisters are broken in their heart for the unfulfilled promise of God. They've been striving. They've been running. The bear is on their back. They're winded and they can't even see the finish line. They don't know when it's coming. But it's coming. This is why brothers spur one another on in the faith. She promised that whatever it was, whatever the Lord did for her, would belong to God. As she kept on praying the Lord to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. I wonder why his mind went there first. Hmm? Y'all know what projection is? If I have this problem, then I'm going to see it in all of you all of the time. There's some great examples of projection, but we're not going to spend time on that this morning. Suffice it to say, his sons were getting drunk in the temple. So it was not a stretch for him to think about this. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. Man, what a, what a beautiful thing. She understood her state. When's the last time you looked at somebody and their perception matched the reality? <laughs> hey, how are you doing? Fine. Right. We lie more time standing in a church building than anywhere else. How you doing? Oh, I'm good. What does the bumper sticker say? Life is wonderful. People are terrific. Business is good. Liar. <laughs> or how, or how, how about this one? No fear. <laughs> yeah, that's why you have insurance on that car, right? No fear. <laughs> Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something. And what's that next phrase say? Her face was, why, did she have a baby? No. Did she have a baby in her arms? But she began to act as if she did. Are you hearing me? Her life began to change. And what was the first thing that you noticed about it? The smile on her face. The first thing you notice that is wrong with Cain in the Bible is, Cain, why is your face so downcast? The first thing that you notice is wrong with the Galatian church is, who has who is cut in on you? Who's bewitched you? What's happened to all your joy? If we really believed that the promise was true, if we really believed that we had victory over death, if we really believed that our king had immeasurably more than we could ask for or imagine before us, then what day of the week would you give yourself the opportunity to be sad? Let's, let's have an experiment. Let's run down to the local prison. Texas seems to kill more people than any other state in the union, right? No amens for that. Thank you. What if we ran down there right now and gave them all pardons? How many of them would be sad about that? How many of us don't understand our state? We don't know. All we do is look at what God's taken away from us and we never look at what God has blessed us 
with. Right? My mother and I get to experience this Mother's Day together without my father. Right? That's it. You have to know, even mentioning that, it's hard for us. It's hard for her to hear. We have a choice to stand right now before you and be excited about the 70 some odd years we got with him or to be upset about the years that we don't get with him. This is a choice before us all of the time. One stretches forward in faith and the other wallows in pity and makes yourself a victim. We get a choice before us all of the time. By the way, I serve a God who can raise the dead. My father is not gone. He's just missing for a little while. Amen. Amen. Michael 7.8 says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, yet will I rise. I believe it's true, so I choose to act like it's true. Yes, that deserves a hand clap, friends. Give the Lord a hand clap. We find that the Lord picks a certain person. Why a certain? Because if we left it general, everybody would say, that doesn't apply to me. But when we pick a specific person, then the promise is not vague. It's not lost in the masses. It was a certain person that was picked. It is always a barren situation of some kind, devoid of any hope, year after year, year after year. And the Lord gives His Word, and His Word produces hope when it's mingled with faith. The outcome of this is always something remarkable. Who was Hannah's son? Samuel. Has there been a mightier man to walk the planet than Samuel? He raised up kings and he pulled them down. He was both a judge of Israel and a prophet of Israel. Samuel was such a mighty man of God that even after his time on the earth was over, he came back and rebuked Saul from the dead. <laughs> Saul didn't get enough rebuking from Samuel in his lifetime. So after his lifetime was over, he came back and slapped him one more time. Come on now. Certain men are picked in barren situations that they might receive the world and have the word and have remarkable offspring, remarkable fruit. Did Samuel, did, did Samuel exist for the benefit of his mother? No. What God speaks into your life is never for you. You want to know about the call of God, number one? How glorious is it for you? You want to know about the call of God, number one? Is it self-serving or self-sacrificing? All Hannah would ever get to do is give up the son that God gave her. You want to know about a call of God? It needs to involve giving up what God has given you for the benefit of others. At the end of the day, did Hannah have a testimony? Come on, Spence, did Hannah have a testimony? She could sit back when nobody knew her name and go, that God that is installing kings, that's raising them up and pulling them down? I had something to do with him. What we always say is that Samuel was raised in the presence of God. Really? He was raised in a place known for the presence of God, but the man who raised him, not a good man. His line cut off in the nation of Israel. His children killed before the presence of God. During his watch, the ark of God went into captivity. Nothing good there. But he did have a mother who offered his life up before the Lord. Before he was even born, before he was even conceived, she said, whatever he is, he'll be yours. Come on. 
what's being conceived in your heart and mind. Does it belong to the Lord or does it belong to you? Turn me to the book of Judges. Tell me when you're there. We'll be in the 13th chapter. There. Look at the 13th chapter and the second verse. What are those first three words? A certain man. A certain man. Imagine that. A certain man. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. It seems like we have the same story repeating over and over and over. One man of God once told me it feels like I'm a superhero, except every time I try to fly, I get tangled up in my cape and fall on my face. I thought, wow, how strange it must be. You're the one person on the planet that struggles with inadequacy, who must trust that God is enough in our weakness. How strange that must be for you. It's a good thing the rest of us never feel like that. He was drowning in self-pity. He wasn't drowning in a cape. He was drowning in self-pity. He said, stand up, walk with God, and it'll be okay. Friends, God speaks into the most desperate situations. That's the ones He picks. These are the certain men. How many of you were wise or noble when He found you? How many of you were rich? How many of you by the standards of this world were a raving success when He found you? In fact, He finds you at your lowest point usually, doesn't He? In fact, it's never really Him who finds you, is it? It's kind of you who finds Him. And where do you find Him? You find him on the wrong side of the mountains, in the barren, trackless wasteland. The way the Bible says it is the broken and contrite heart he will not despise. We become aware of him. We become enveloped in him. We are movable by him when we're devoid of everything else. Had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless. Thanks, angel. What happened to don't confess that over me? Somebody tell that preacher in Darrow, Louisiana that this angel hadn't heard his messages. Because faith cometh by hearing. Really? Because this angel's just telling the truth. Praise God he didn't stop with your barren and sterile. That wasn't his only message. Romans 4 teaches us that faith actually faces the fact that your body's as good as dead. Faith actually acknowledges the obstacle but reasons in your heart that God is still able to perform what He promises. Faith is not a blind, wishful thinking. Faith acknowledges what's wrong and says, and God's still bigger. That's what faith does. This other thing is ridiculous. Just don't receive it. I had a friend that had a particular ailment that did not allow him to sit well. His boss said, just don't receive it. I said, too late, they have landed. <laughs> Sometimes we have twisted the Word of God into some ridiculous riddles. This angel acknowledges exactly what is wrong, but says, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Faith acknowledges the hardship. It says, I'm sick, but God is able to heal me. It says, I am barren, but God is able to give me a child. I am jobless, but... God is able to give me a job that doesn't stand there and say, no, 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 I'm employed. When you're obviously not employed. Nowhere in the Bible do you lie and call it faith. I know some of you think Rahab did it. 
And maybe Shifra and Pua, you don't know who Shifra and Pua are, do you? Oh, good, okay, then we, we can leave it alone. There are a couple people who stepped forward in faith. They sacrificed. They said something that was not totally accurate at the cost of their lives. And God credited it to them as faith. But they're rare occasions. Faith acknowledges hardship and says God can overcome it anyway. But you're going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. By the time we get to verse 8, the father is praying, Oh Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. It sounds like there was a total abandonment of ownership of what God was giving them. It sounds like what God was giving them, they would in turn give back to God. This is the mark of a godly calling. Let me ask you, did it say certain man? Yes, God had a very specific promise for a certain person. Was there a barren situation? There was, and it was acknowledged, but God's Word went into the barren situation. Did it produce a remarkable child? By anybody's standard, Samson is a remarkable child. He's remarkably bad, and he's remarkably good, but he is definitely remarkable. Why was he born? To deliver Israel. Dustin's the only Bible student in the room. Come on, church, catch up. Was Samson's life for the benefit of his parents only? It was for others. A godly call is always for others. Did Samson's parents have a testimony? Yeah. That boy who gave his life for our nation. He was ours. Come on now, do you want a testimony or do you want the glory that precludes you from getting a real testimony? Are you hearing me? It almost always involves sacrifice. It almost always involves a lack of recognition to get a real testimony. What you hear all of the time on the three-lettered station with the purple hair on the thrones and all of those things, is the exact opposite of this. What you hear is that God wants you rich right now. And that if you are not blessed right now, something is wrong. I don't find that anywhere in the Word. I'm going to tell you plainly, if you're watching that garbage, you should stop. You should stop right now. If you have so much time that you need to watch hours of that, go volunteer at some other church that has more work for you to do. I've traveled around the world this year. More miles probably than anybody in the room, although Steve could give me a close run for my money. They watch that garbage everywhere. You know what? It is not producing good fruit. <coughs> They're looking for things that God is not looking for. Because there are these strange fishers of funds that are leading the masses astray for selfish reasons. You know what we should be looking for? The chance to do something without recognition for the King of Kings. We should be looking for the chance to do something solely for the benefit of others without a dime's worth of personal gain. We should be looking to make ourselves poor that others might become rich just like our king because the book of Philippians says our attitude should be that of Christ Jesus and that's exactly what he did. We ought to be in the foot-washing crowd, not the exalting crowd.
proud. Yeah. Turn with me to the book of Luke. Are you all tired of turning? Yeah. I know I have probably stepped on somebody's toes because we have called out something that is wrong. I would much rather step on your toes than tickle your ears. And I find out that you're rarely allowed to have everyone agree with you. That's just something that is not usually offered. But you don't understand so-and-so's there, and, and they do great things where they keep bad company. Listen to them somewhere else. Don't support that stuff. It is garbage. I don't want to be associated with any of it. I can show you clips, a collection, eight, ten minutes long, that if it doesn't turn your stomach, something is wrong with your stomach. The people have gone astray, friends. It's so far from Jesus. You find things said daily, daily, and enforced by a peer group that are nowhere in the Word and so far from the heart of God. So, well, then why is it so accepted? Because people have always been easily led astray. It's always been this way. The heart of God calls you to sacrifice. That's what He calls you to. To sacrifice for other people's benefit. Are you in the book of Luke? Yes. Look at the fifth verse. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. They're both priestly. Koanim. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children. Apparently, the righteous struggle to have children. Apparently, it's hard because we're opposed. Not just children in the natural, but spiritual children. Why is it hard to have real disciples? Because people don't want to be discipled. Got all kind of illegitimate children running around everywhere. They claim, they claim to the heavens, but have never done any work on heaven's behalf. It happens all over the place. These people were priestly. They were loved by the Lord. And there was difficulty. Because great difficulty gives the opportunity for great power to be displayed. The Lord loved them. So He allowed them into a position of great difficulty. When is the last time you heard that preached in football stadiums? It doesn't happen because it's not what people want to hear. But He allows great difficulty that He might display great power. Who in here wants to see blind eyes open? Raise your hand. Give me an amen if you want to see the dead raised. Amen. Who wants to volunteer to be blind or dead? <laughs> but you can't have one without the other. There has to be great problems for great faith to overcome them. But what we hear is that there are no problems. There's only this perversion of faith. In Jesus' day, there was a perversion of the law. In our day, there's a perversion of what is called faith. Faith acknowledges that there are problems all around us and says, <laughs> this is a chance for God to do a bigger miracle. Amen. Nevertheless, God, do you remember Becky Clawson? I don't know where she is or what. She's just a little old Baptist lady. She was abrasive in every possible way to us because we were young and carnal, right? We loved the Lord, but we didn't know very much about Him. So she'd say, how are you? 
I'd say, well, my back hurts a little bit. I was painting all night. She'd say, nevertheless, God. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Amen. She expected you to be joyful always. There were 400 spaces in front of our school where I was painting. 400. About 10 of them closest to the door were painted blue. I don't know what that special designation was for. Had a guy in a seat out there. But in any case, I parked in one of those. She came, grabbed me by my ear, walked me over to the window at 18 years old, married, pointed out there, and she said, do you see that? I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, what is that? I said, that's my, my, my car. She said, rebellion is the same as witchcraft. Yes, ma'am, I'll go move it right now. But what I remember most about Becky Clawson is she said, nevertheless, God accepted nothing else. I never met a person that had more personal difficulties in her life. But she had learned to say, nevertheless, God. Now, I don't know where she is right now, but I bet she's favored by the King of Kings. Because she learned to say, nevertheless, God. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well along in years. The Bible usually puts the onus upon the woman. It's not fair. I don't know why. We'll take that up with God one day. <laughs> but in this case, it says she was barren and they were old. <laughs> I mean, it's just what it says. In other words, it's not just a one-sided problem. This is going to take lots of miracle power on lots of people's part. But they were loved by the Lord. The greater the problem, the greater the chance for a big miracle. Once when Zachariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by Lot. I'm sure that that was completely random. Do you think a certain Lot had to fall, Charlie? Do you think that a certain thing had to happen? Do you think that this is an indication he was chosen? According to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came... All the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Apparently, even though he was too old and his wife was too barren, he still had some hope alive because he was praying about it. Come on now, what you do in your prayer closet what you speak to God about in private has its way of taking hold in your life so that you can speak about it publicly because what you talk to Him privately about, you begin to have faith rise in your heart and then you begin to speak about it publicly. It's why Hannah, who had been praying privately about a matter, eventually began to declare it by the smile on her face all around her. Faith never stays a private matter. You know why? It's vulnerable. It risks something. It always risks being wrong. It does. It acknowledges that there's a great big problem that only God could fix, but then announces, I believe He will fix it. Come on, I want to ask you, where is that kind of faith? Who in the room has that kind of faith growing in you? Or do we play it safe and hedge our bets? Do we say, maybe God will do it this way, maybe He'll do it that way? Or do we just keep completely silent about it all? Oh, it's between me and the Lord. This is not biblical faith, friends. Yeah. Biblical faith is bold. It's tenacious. It jumps right out there. Not lying. 
Not saying you've heard what you haven't, but declaring what you have heard without wavering. Why is Abraham the father of the faithful? Because he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. And hope in the resurrection when he raised the knife above the sun, he had a tenacious faith. Tenacious faith is often decades long, friends, not minutes long. It's not the hype that occurs at an altar. It's not worked up. It's delivered from heaven down. You want to find the measure of a man, you find it in his prayer life. Because what he speaks to the Lord about in private becomes something that is public. Didn't Jesus say that? This is what faith is. Let's talk about being enveloped. By the way, when we're talking about this faith, your prayer has been heard. Did somebody special come from these people? Who was it? It was not. It was John the baptizer. He was most certainly not baptized. He was non-denominational. They didn't have him back then. Actually, they did. More than they didn't count. A certain man received the promise. It involved being completely barren and devoid of hope, but receiving a word from somebody who stood in the presence of God. It produced a remarkable child. Was John mostly for the benefit of Zechariah and Elizabeth, or did he mostly benefit others? But boy, don't you think they had a testimony? Are you seeing where we're going with this, friends? Let's turn an awful long ways. Let's go all the way to the 26th verse and look at one more couple. Mama, I know that there were some neat things that happened in your life around the time that you decided to have children. I don't mean in any way to compare my mama or me to the people that we're reading about. But isn't the miracle of the gospel that ordinary people have extraordinary things happen? Yeah? So she's not Mary and I'm not Jesus. The man she was married to is definitely not Zachariah and she's not Elizabeth. But is it any surprise that when God wants to use somebody's life for the benefit of other people, it's resisted by the enemy? I was born in her sixth month. What did I weigh? A couple pounds? Two pounds. Spent most of a year in the hospital. Was under two pounds at some points. Right? But a woman who was not walking daily with the Lord heard the voice of the Lord say, this one belongs to me. And what she heard in private began to take shape in her life. It began to cause her to make some different decisions in her life. It began to cause her to hunger for the Lord. Yeah. There are a lot of times we don't tell all these stories. It's easier to tell them about somebody else. So let me tell you about my pastor. His mama had her tubes cut and tied. And then they burned the ends. I don't know why. I guess they wanted to be redundant. And then it seems that she had a tumor. Except it turned out to be a little pastor. After six months, the tumor had grown to enormous proportions. After nine months, that tumor was born and became a blessing to the world. Why is it hard for the righteous to produce something? It's hard because it's opposed by the enemy. It's hard because it takes faith. It's hard because it requires you to tenaciously 
trust him in spite of all of the evidence. Are you hearing me? So who in here are the people of faith? Let's look at Mary and Joseph. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Now, I don't want to get too incredibly graphic. I think you know what these words mean. She's not yet married, and the Bible calls her a virgin, so how likely is it that she'll have a child? About as likely that Natalie Pirro will have a child right now. You ready, Natalie? Poof. She says no. <laughs> and how would you think about Natalie and the Pirros? Would there be a little whispering? Is that not the electrician's kid? Hmm? Would there be? She is a virgin, friends. This was not good news to her. <laughs> Except it was great news. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. What does it mean when the Lord is with you, friends? It means that you have been picked a certain man. It means that you are devoid of any kind of life concerning what he's about to do. But he's going to give you a word that's going to change your life. It means that you will produce something that is remarkable. It will be for others and you'll have nothing at the end of it except a testimony. That's what it means. Now what was involved in Mary's sacrifice? How would you, any aqua, do you want to go to those you respect most and say, Hey, not married, but I'm pregnant. You just dying to do that? How about a, a little Jewish town that is socially conservative? You, you want to do that? The Lord with you. You're highly favored. Sounds like highly favored from the Lord has a highly troubled life. Doesn't it? Come on, Mike said that I had to bring a good word this morning. That's what he told me. He said he wanted a word from the throne room. Well, this is not the kind of word you want to hear from the throne room, but a highly favored life is a highly troubled life. You want a life that is miraculous? You need to understand you're going to have a life that needs miracles. You want to walk by the Spirit? You're going to have a life that will not be satisfied and cannot be sustained by walking by mere natural instinct. That's what it means. Let's not look for the easy road. Let's not try to coast. Let's not pretend. People that live like that, songs, say are the wicked. Their life are easy. Their life is carefree. Do you consider its final outcome? <coughs> Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. Remove all of the religious window dressing for a moment. Forget every nativity you've ever seen where there's a, oh, kind of, this is a little girl. She might be as young as 14 years old. What do you think would be the immediate feeling that she would have? I would be terrified. I'd be scared out of my mind. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. 
How will this be, Mary asked, since I'm a virgin? Isn't this a reasonable question? Lord, how are you going to do the impossible? He doesn't always answer it. But suffice it to say, he asked something so difficult of this little girl that he answered it. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is such a neat word in Greek. It is a beautiful word. Episkiatsu. Episkiatsu. And it doesn't mean just to cast a shadow. It's a compound word. And when you break apart the compound words, it means to cast a shadow. But it's never used like that. The only thing that comes close to it is Peter was said to have had this word when his shadow healed people. But every other time this word is mentioned in the Bible, it's accompanied by something else. Something glorious. I'm going to show it to you. By the way, in the original language, it is not possible in any way to consider this a physical action. Are you hearing me? In the original language, it's not possible to misconstrue this in the way that a perverse Hollywood director would. In the original language, this speaks of something of supernatural consequence. Something that is absolutely amazing. By the way, as you're waiting for me to get there, he said that you would be overshadowed at So, do you hear the next word? The Holy One to be born will be called. It's kind of like God said, so let there be light, or let there be light, and, there, and it was so. This is the reaction of something happening. God is saying, I am going to do something, and therefore there will be a consequence. How many of you want something that is purely the action of the Lord? I do too. I do with all of my heart. I want something that has no man in it. I want something that has nothing that I could have accomplished by my own effort. I want my only contribution to be a tenacious trust that would not give up. And whatever happens to be purely divine. That's what we're speaking about here. This word occurs a couple times in the Septuagint, but not to give you a linguistics lesson. I will just tell you that the two times it occurs in the Septuagint that I could find... The Greek translation of the Older Testament is in Psalm 91 when God is gathering like a bird would gather his, his chicks under his feathers at the Skiatsu. When the glory descended in Exodus 40 upon the tabernacle and the King James says it abided there, this whole phrase is described in Greek as at the Skiatsu. It doesn't just mean that his presence casted a shadow, but let's talk about casted a shadow for just a minute. If I'm going to cast a shadow upon Spence, I have to get in a specific position or else Spence does. Huh? Mary had positioned her life in such a way that God could overshadow her. How is your life positioned? Is it something that God can bless? Are you standing in a place that he has declared, I am holy and I will not bless that and asking him to overshadow you? See, you need to do something. You need to repent from the direction of your own walking and walk in a way that he can overshadow. This little girl had nothing to contribute to this process. 
nothing except a life that had been positioned in a way that God could overshadow her. The best examples I could find of this word come from the book of Matthew. Turn with me to the 17th chapter. The 17th chapter. In the 16th chapter, <laughs> in the 28th verse, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John. Do those three guys appear differently than the rest in the Scripture? Some refer to them as the inner circle. He called twelve, but He singles out three certain men all of the time. He said, some of you, not all of you here, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man in His kingdom. Then He took Peter, James, and John, certain men, up on a high mountain by themselves. There He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became as white as the light. The book of Mark says, whiter than any launderer could bleach them. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. What an amazing thing. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, there will be a prophet like me raised up from among your own brothers. You must listen to him or you will be cut off from your people. And then the book of Malachi, the last in the Old Testament canon of Scripture. In the fourth chapter, somewhere around the fifth verse, he said, Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I will send you the prophet Elijah. Why were Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus on this mountain? It's a divine continuity. It's a connection between the promise that was given to Moses of inheriting the land, the promise given to Moses of a divine revelation of God's character, and the promise of the renewal of all things that was given to the Jewish people to be signified by Elijah. And who is standing there with them? The one who makes both happen. He's standing there with them. The book of Revelation speaks of two witnesses. You can argue all of your life and try to figure out who they are. We'll leave that argument alone today. I will tell you that every single Passover, every single one, there's a chair set among Orthodox Jewish people and there always has been. Because they heard the word that Elijah must come. So they set a chair waiting for Elijah to come with the Messiah because if Elijah showed up, it would signify the renewal of all things. Now they see standing there in glory on a mountain, Jesus with the great lawgiver and Jesus with the great renewer, renewal of all things, the guy who triggers it. And it's a full picture, a full revelation. Come on now, how many people are running around with just part of the picture? But these three were chosen for a very specific thing. Kind of like when the angel let the apostle out of prison and said, go back into the court and proclaim the full message. Not the acceptable part of it. Not the digestible part of it. Not the part that you find business-like or dignified. The full message. These men were chosen to see the whole picture Jesus said it was like seeing the Son of Man in the kingdom of God. 
Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The other gospel commentators, Luke 9 and, and Mark 9 say, yeah, he was sleepy or he was out of his mind somehow. He didn't really know what he was saying. Have you ever had such a big encounter with the Lord that it left you loopy? Has he ever said something to you, Gabrielle, that you thought there's no way this could come about, and yet somehow my heart is filled with hope that it will? Come on. This is what it's like when you find an encounter with the divine. It's completely outside of your grasp and perfectly within his. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. Epi schiatsu. A bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. In what way did the Holy Spirit overshadow Mary? In the same way that a bright cloud enveloped these men. They were completely caught up in his presence as if the kingdom of God had come to earth. It takes a really strange person to try to twist that into something perverse, doesn't it? You would never read this word in, in the Gospel of Matthew and say, this is obviously something more going on here than the writer said. But apparently you can write fictional novels and sell wicked movies if you insinuate something nasty about Mary. Yeah. It's a funny thing, though. Supernatural has always been criticized in these ways. The supernatural is so far beyond the scope of a human's achievement that people have to cast shadows on it because after all, why is it happening in your life and not happening in theirs? You show me a great deliverer in the Bible and I will show you somebody who is greatly opposed, somebody that was slandered from every side. They didn't like Moses' wife. They didn't like Joseph's coat. You know? It doesn't matter. They find some reason not to like you if you're called of God because your very existence on the earth is convicting to them. By the way, just to wrap up in Elijah's subject, probably most of you aren't interested in it, but let me just tell you. Verse 11, Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. You've got a new American standard that says to be sure Elijah is coming. And so does almost every other major translation. And NIV is not wrong, it just doesn't emphasize it so much. But I tell you the truth, Elijah has already come. How many things in the Bible have happened and are still yet to happen? Many, many things. Many, many things. We have a day with the testimony these men have received. The testimony that they bore witness to, not for their own benefit, but for the lives of others. These certain men who were, did, were they born knowing this, friends? How about Peter and John? Let's talk about them. We don't have very much written about James outside of the Gospels. So let's talk about Peter and John. Were they born understanding the full picture of God? No. How many times in the Scripture can they both be demonstrated to be completely barren of this understanding? But somehow or another, the curtain's been removed. Like that little gem in Greek you sent me the other day, Jacob. They could suddenly see something standing before them that, that had always been there. Do you think Jesus' nature was fundamentally changed from the mountain of transfiguration? No, they could just see him <laughs> differently. They saw the whole picture there. Was it without effect in their lives? Let's turn to see what 1 Peter says. You're going to be in 1 Peter? We'll be in the first chapter. 
Come on, friends. Have you already gotten all you can eat? No. You're already so full? No. I'd love to preach on Hebraic customs. I'd love to tell you all about Elijah. I'm going to tell you if you're hungry, come back. I'll tell you the rest. Today I want to talk to you about being enveloped. In the, in the first chapter of 1 Peter, look at verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the, the, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you see that He's praising them for not having seen Him? And yet, He had. Turn to 2 Peter. Look at the 15th verse of the first chapter. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we were told when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him am I well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven. We were with him on the sacred mountain. How did Peter's life end? He was killed for having this. Killed for having maintained this testimony. Was he a certain man that was... Picked? Yes. Was he barren of this revelation when he was picked? Yes, but he received the word. Did Peter raise up some remarkable children? Hello, who are you? Was his revelation for him or for others primarily? Well, I think we've gotten more out of what Peter wrote than Peter did. What is Peter left with? An amazing testimony. Don't all of you want to meet him? How about John, the other guy who could be demonstrated after the Gospels to have been there? Look at John, the first chapter. Tell me when you're in the first chapter. Don't quit on me. We only got a couple scriptures left. In the first chapter of John, look at the 14th verse. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen His glory. It seems that faith has something to do with being enveloped in the presence of God, hearing, seeing something that others could never believe was possible. Something impossible, but possible by the presence of God. It involving the sacrifice of self, but you would have a testimony. And everything that you do would benefit someone else. Come on, on Mother's Day. <clears throat> Is there anything that could be more sacrificial than knowing that there's a little life that is growing inside of you? Maybe everybody else doesn't see it at first. But it's there. And for the rest of your life, you would no longer live for yourself but in the hope that they would produce something, that they would reach their calling. See, the truth is that the Bible life is a sacrificial life. You see that best demonstrated on Mother's Day and a first-time mom who is struggling in learning that her life is no longer about her, 
Her life was about the life that God gave her. Now Mary was pregnant with nothing other than the promise of God. It was not the natural relation between a man and a woman. She was pregnant with the Word of God. This is possible in every person's life. He speaks into the void that is darkness. Tohu vavohu. It is destruction and waste. Barren. And he says something that's impossible. Let there be light. Then he begins to order your life. He begins to show you how to rule and reign so that something can come from you. Something that primarily is about others. Something that at the end of the day leaves you not rich, it just leaves you with a testimony. Come on, how do you want to live your life, saints? I want to live it in faith. Turn with me to 1 John. Near the end of his life. Listen to what he's bragging about. In 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He wasn't preaching someone else's experience. He had been enveloped in the presence of God and it left him forever changed. Come on now. What is he trying to bring into your life? Have you positioned it in a way have you done what it takes to remove or move out of areas where His light is not shining? How are you going to have a shadow cast on you if you cannot get in the light, if you hate the light, if you're scared of the light? You've got to get out into the light, friends, to be overshadowed by anything. He will give you a testimony that in eternity is bigger than you. That's what a miracle is. It's a testimony that in eternity is bigger than you. It overshadows you. It envelops you. It's bigger than your talents. It's bigger than your resources. It's bigger than you. This is biblical faith, friends. Amen. Not waiting for a magical check or a Cadillac to appear. That is so small. That is so petty, so base, and so carnal. But a testimony it is bigger than you in eternity and blessed far more people than you ever personally met. That's something worth aiming for. Amen. Isaiah 55 is our last scripture. Isaiah 55 in the ninth verse on down through the 12th and 13th verse. Amen, Pedro? He begins to speak about his thoughts being higher than our thoughts. He begins to say that His Word does not return void. He begins to say that the same way that snow and rain water the earth, so will His seed, or so will His Word water seed, yielding fruit. You want to find out how to get enveloped in God's principles, God's ways, God's promise? You want to find out how to have something inside of you that God could say, I've overshadowed you, so this is of me. This is godly offspring need to receive His Word. To receive it, you need to make a hollow place in your life for it. In fact, you have to lose your whole life for it. Our God is not very into 50% commitment. He's not very into 75% commitment. He's not into 99% commitment. He's pretty much all or nothing. How would you describe your walk? 
See, because one thing's for sure, a pregnancy is all or nothing. You know, you can read all the little warnings that say for 98% this is effective. That's wonderful unless you're in the 2%. Then it's 100% ineffective. Hmm? A pregnancy is all or nothing and so is faith. It is all or it is nothing. It never hedges its bets. It never backs up. It never says God can't. It always boldly risks for God. That's how you end up selling your house and moving to another place without a job. It's how you end up doing things that the world says you're crazy and God says you're highly favored. Amen? Amen. We have a choice to decide what kind of life we want. I preached all I'm going to preach on the subject today. I want that full revelation. I want to see from Moses to Elijah going to have a supernatural life it's going to be highly challenged yeah. you're going to step up or it's going to step you out yeah. nobody ever says they stepped out instead they say you know god changed his mind because he's like a shifting shadow he does that right? he's he's so uncertain he's wavering like a like a leaf thrown in the wind he's yes today and no tomorrow no it's people who are fickle let god be true and every man be a liar i'm going to stand with him stand your feet church